Come on in. We were just talking. Welcome to the Open Marriage Podcast, candid conversations about life, marriage, and parenting. More honesty than polyamory, but we talk about it all. I'm Summer, and I'm joined in conversation by my husband, Jason. Well, Jason just took the conversation to vaginas with teeth. So it seems like the right time to turn the <laughs> microphones on. Jeez. <laughs> and then we were singing. I'm not going to sing Maneater. Yeah, come on, sing it with me. Oh, here she comes. Come Watch out, boy. She'll cheer you up. Man, we have been talking this week about, of course, current affairs. We've been talking about power and love, archetypes, masculine and feminine. Yeah. Coddling. And somehow we've landed on the devouring mother. <laughs> Whew, man, heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. What is the devouring mother? Well, the devouring mother comes from the writings of Carl Jung. I believe the term he uses it for in his writings is the terrible mother, I think is how he described it. He thought in terms of archetypes, in terms of mythological symbols that represented different psychological traits. And these are the sorts of things that emerge over and over in the art that we make and in the stories each civilization comes up with. Joseph Campbell you know, talks a lot about this in his writings about mythology because he would do cross-cultural studies on all of this, these different stories that stand the test of time and keep getting retold over and over and over by each civilization sort of arrives at these same sorts of archetypal stories and myths on their own. Like they, each culture discovers it for themselves. And so the Jung's thinking and some of the psychologists who have studied his writing and, and built on it, they believe that this is tied to fundamental aspects of human psychology and knots that we are trying to untie in our own mind, stresses and difficulties that we have in terms of navigating the world. And art is a canvas or a page in which we are going into a kind of lucid dreaming state and we're trying to unpick these psychic knots. And so the devouring mother or the terrible mother is an archetype of the chaos of nature, which can be, it can be nurturing, it can be a womb, it can be protective. However, it can also be overwhelming. And, and so this is tied archetypally, this is tied to uh, femininity because you have you know, the womb, which is obviously directly tied to female biology. You have the vagina, which sort of wraps around and receives and sort of encloses. And Camille Paglia, the cultural critic and academic, she talks about, obviously drawing from the writing of Freud, she talks about the fact that the woman's sex organs are hidden. Uh, unlike the man, where they're out on display. And she says this actually ties into some of these psychological aspects of the woman being inherently mysterious. And she uses the word occult, 
And the word occult means hidden, essentially. And so the woman almost has this kind of occultic dimension to her because she is mysterious in terms of, I mean, she talks about the sex organs, the things that happen internally, whereas a man, it's visible and out there. To bring it back to the devouring mother, the devouring mother is mother nature at its most fierce. And if you think of protectiveness of being almost like a swaddling blanket that wraps around you to keep you warm and give you that comforting hug of closeness and insulation from all the chaos of the world. Imagine that as you're tightening up the hold of that swaddling blanket that you just keep pulling it tight, tighter and tighter and tighter. And it goes from feeling insulating and comforting to feeling asphyxiating and oppressive and you know nature if you took that into the realm of nature imagine vines wrapping around you or like shading you initially kind of protecting you from the elements but all of a sudden the vines are wrapping around you like cords of rope until they eventually pull you down into the earth where you decompose Jungian psychologists, they believe that there is a psychological conflict between every human being, not just men, but women too, and the protective parent. And that, based on the distribution of um, psychological traits, women statistically has a greater likelihood of them having a psycho- psychological disposition where they, are, they have a nurturing disposition. I'm not getting into stereotypes of all women are nurturing, but there is, you know, studies cross-culturally of women seem to appear to have developed these traits in accordance with evolutionary strategies because in the fight to survive, there was a a naturally occurring division of labor where they had to care for the young because of the reliance of these incredibly fragile like the gestation period of human infants is so long that they require so much attention and they're so demanding and there had to be a parent. They wouldn't survive without at least one of those parents attending to their every need for years, really, which is, an, I mean, <laughs> we are parents and we know how demanding you know that childhood stage can be and you bore the brunt of that. So there's a natural kind of caring process that needs to happen. However, where that shade and where that protectiveness can turn into those almost like poison ivy from the Batman, her vines and all of those things, like that seems like another kind of artistic archetypal expression of this of this idea, as is Medusa and her snakes and her hair, almost like vines that can turn the hero to stone and Hansel and Gretel, that myth of the old crone, you know, wanting to devour the children and and trap them. I think she traps them in cages. And so that's another expression of the devouring mother. But this is the, the journey that we go through from depending on our parent. Again, this is very often the mother, not in every every household, uh, but the mother who starts out protecting us, but then either finds it difficult to let go of that child to grant them their independence or derive such a deep sense of meaning from that role as a parent that they struggle to 
relinquish that sense of meaning because it's too destabilizing for their identity. And so that they cling on and overprotect that child. And that's where the coddling comes in. Do you think that could be the experience of the child, regardless of whether that is what is happening with the mother? Like, is the struggle just as much the child's to sort out these facts and behaviors and connections, whether or not it is actually being delivered in that package? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it's our experience of the world is always wrapped up with it's much less about the tends to be much less about the facts of reality and more about the story that we tell ourselves so depending on our sensitivities a mother who is is actually pretty easygoing if we're very very hypersensitive to con- to being controlled from the outside then we might feel that sense of the devouring oppressive mother overprotective mother in somebody who's maybe not that aggressively coddling so yeah i think i think depending on we're all different and depending on the sensitivities it could um yeah it could be felt in very very acute ways by certain people whereas other people might be less bothered by it Mm. i was very acutely (laughs) sensitive to it i'd be curious to hear what your experience was like with my mother or as a mother in terms of your experience of moving into your own independence, I feel like maybe you, from what I know about your situation, it was almost a study in the the opposite extreme, where instead of being overprotected, you were raised for a period of time by a single mom and a bit of a latchkey kid. You would spend time at home alone. My mother was a stay-at-home mom who you're very religious, and to be a good mom in in my household that I grew up in was you're a stay-at-home mom and you give your children, you self-sacrifice everything to your children and your entire meaning in life is being the good wife and mother. She invested everything in me to her enormous credit. Like she self-sacrificed to the most extreme degree. Um, but the downside of it was that it created a lot of torment for me in terms of I emerged a bit of a man child (laughs) out of that situation because she was so caring and she also is a very perfectionistic ordered person who has a very clear sense of how things should look or be done and so she struggled to let us as children do things to a result that didn't align with her view of how they should be done so she was very quick to step in and do things for us. I think it was a perfect storm and in those certain ways that where I had a learned helplessness um, that became an issue for me moving into adulthood. And then unfortunately, I kind of hired you to, <laughs> to step in and, <laughs> and uh, you know, compensate you know, for those uh, deficiencies rather than really growing up on my own and learning how to take care of myself. I was like, oh, this person, you know, can do this job really nicely. Which was the rude awakening <laughs> for you because <laughs> I was not interested in that job. No, you were not. You were definitely not. In looking at this, we kind of have to hold it a little bit lightly ourselves because it's not always completely reflective of 
the other person or even reality. That's what we're saying. Like you, we see it through our own lens and yet some of it is, some of it is going to show up and you're going to, we can see it in ourselves as the mothers and some of it we can see in our children and how they interpret the world. And, and it, I think there's room to allow for both. Like one of my favorite things, both, both of our kids have said this to us, but your dad reminded me of this. We were riding in the car the other week and talking about school and Liam and how just learning so much right now and how school and friends play into that. And he wanted to strongly make the point that we don't play into that. He doesn't learn anything from us. <laughs> and, and I just thought it was, it was so sweet. Like there's real differentiation and as the parent, you know that that's not true and that you are a huge part of their learning, but you don't have to insist it. You you just observe it and respect it, and yet it's a gift to let others feel independent because they will come to see in time how these things all weave together. You don't have to prove the point or hold your stake in, in that investment. And Similarly, Rowan, when she started her Montessori, came <laughs> came home to me at four saying something to the tune of, Mommy, you should come to school with me. You might learn something or you will learn something or something. I mean, it was just like, it just this dawned on her that <laughs> there's a whole world of things I don't know <laughs> and hadn't taught her and and absolutely, like we each need to have a sense of ownership over our own learning. And as parents, we want to foster that. I mean, obviously, I had been teaching her things. She was well prepared and equipped for it. But it learning became her own adventure and her own journey. And I just, I love that. And actually, both of those conversations are a point of pride. They are not an embarrassment or something I have to defend it is a sign that they're ready to take this on themselves. And I feel really, really good about that and happy to take the back seat there. And Can I ask you a question? Mm. So you were a full-time mom. Um, you didn't go back to work. You really did want to, to be there for all of it. And that was important to you. However, you are also not a coddler. <laughs> you didn't coddle me in our relationship with the kids. Like, how did you balance the, I'm full time with these kids, but I don't want to feel like I'm this ubiquitous presence that is doing everything for them. Almost like a godlike figure who's always there watching, kind of running the show. Because I think parents, there is a little bit of that God complex of, because those human beings that we're parenting, they're so, they are impressionable and small and it's easy to kind of manhandle them. Excuse the gendered language there, but <laughs> but it is, that, again, that's the archetypal thing of this idea of manhood as being like a more muscular kind of controlling presence. Mm. So what did that look like for you? You know, when I was working and we lived in Atlanta and I really enjoyed my job, I remember being confronted with I might not stay home with kids. And I think up until that point, I had always completely assumed I would change gears when we had kids and I would be full-time because that was truly my desire. I wanted to do that. And then 
I found myself in a place of really enjoying my career and thinking, you know, maybe it's not good to put my life completely on hold for other people. Maybe that wouldn't serve my happiness or theirs. And I was conflicted about that. And then as life would have it, that option wasn't on the table when the time came. And so what I got was a little bit by default, but ultimately completely in line with my core desire. And that had been there all along. And I think that was my desire because it wasn't my experience. Having come from a divorced home and yeah, a period where my mom was single and always working full time, always, you know, even when she was married and had us. And being a very sensitive child, I think I just did not get what I wanted from that relationship. I got a lot from it. I just didn't get as much as I wanted. And of her? Yeah, of of every the whole thing, you know, uh, of her, of my parents, you know, yeah. my dad was out of the picture and then not not completely, but I just didn't get everything I wanted yeah. from that. And I felt very insecure because of that. I continued throughout my life to feel the effects of feeling poorly attached. Again, I don't know if that was the case or not. My mom is amazing with babies, and I think I was very securely attached. But it comes back to my threshold and my capacity as a person and how much I wanted that relationship, how much I wanted from that, and whether that need was met or not. It really doesn't matter whether it was valid. The feelings I have from it were a result of my expectations. And I felt very insecure. And I just, as a parent, knew that I wanted to provide a different experience. And I wanted there to be a security and a stability and a presence. That being said, it was very challenging because when I found myself in it, I had a huge identity crisis. All of a sudden, I felt no value. I was earning no money. I wasn't contributing to society. I, I mean, all those things really shook me. And I just felt like it wasn't significant enough to be a mother. And I resisted that a lot. And then even thinking about the way in which I did attribute value to being a good mother. It was so dreamy and idyllic. I mean, you had to bake, you had to color, you had to sing. Oh my gosh, I wish I could have. I wish I was a singer. I wanted lullabies. You like singing and, lullabies and yes, things like that. Yes, <laughs> and for one, I knew no lullabies. I mean, I knew like a few, but they weren't beautiful. And I can't sing, so it wasn't pretty. And actually, eventually, Liam ended up telling me, don't sing, mommy. The experience did not measure up in my mind to what it needed to be to be worthy of, of having credit. And that was very mm. challenging. You know, I guess in my mind, I pictured I needed to be more like a school teacher. I needed to have a lesson plan and a song for the day. And I think I envy mothers where that is their strength and that is what they have to offer. I really wish that had been me. And it, it took a long time to let that go. And only with hindsight do I see, oh, I actually have a lot to offer in this space, but it doesn't look anything like that. And I just regret all the time I allowed myself to beat myself up for not being the picture of what I thought motherhood needed to look like. From my perspective, I see it as this incredible gift that you have 
given to them that the full value of it won't even be fully evident until they are adults making their contribution. Yuck, you talked about the con- your contribution to society and the time that you spent these 10 years of throwing everything you have into parenting and really in a very self-sacrificial way is that long-term investment. You know, there's the investments where we, you get all the reward up front and that tends to be, can be a quite shallow sort of superficial kind of reward. And it's usually a bit smaller because we cash it out immediately. But the investments that make us metaphorical millionaires or whatever, for some people it's financial millionaires, they make an investment, put all of their spare money into that investment, and then all of a sudden it grows into this huge fortune. But that comes later and it's always deferred. Yeah, And so those long-term payoffs are always so much larger than the short-term payoffs. And I love our kids, who they are now. But the people they are growing into are going to be so confident. And hopefully, you know, you never know. Maybe all human beings are prone to self-doubt and imposter syndrome and paranoid anxiety. And But I think 99% of the credit for this goes to you. But they are such secure people because of the love and respect that you've shown them as little human beings. Hmm. Makes me think of how we're all looking to find this parenting advice that makes it all clear and kind of dawned on me one day that it can be as simple as parenting equally to your strength and parenting equally to your lack. And I say lack because it's what was it that you didn't get that you wanted? That's what you have to give because you know what that feels like. And security was that for me, whether it was emotional or a sense of self that I was valuable. There's, you know, that, that sense of security. It's not as simple as one word. It kind of manifests in different ways, but that was where I felt a little empty. That is where I have parented aspirationally. And in that process, I've gifted them that security Mm, and mm -hmm. I am slowly gifting it to myself as well. And I think that's that thread that's coming up in conversation so much right now of reparenting, this idea of giving to yourself what you needed as a child. And I would say to the strengths, the problem I take with parenting advice is it's always only through one person's lens and each of us are so unique And so here I was myself looking at another version of what I considered idyllic parenting. And it is idyllic and it is out there and it's a version. And so it was easy to hold myself up to it and say, you should be able to do this. But it was never in my wheelhouse. I was never going to (laughs) draw and paint and I I want to so badly, but it just doesn't happen in a day or a year or 10 years. It has never happened. You have bought all this stuff. You've painted watercolors at the table watching YouTube videos with Rowan and painting beautiful little robins on Okay, that's true. It hasn't never happened. And you are a good artist, so I'm just going to call bullshit. You are a lot of these things, and it's so interesting how there's a blind spot of like, you can't, you think of yourself a certain way that, and you have sang to the kids, and you have a beautiful voice, and (laughs) 
and you've painted with them and you've baked with them and for them. I mean, a lot of mothers just bake for their kids and like put a pan of brownies on the table, but you literally endure the mess of them, you know, mm. spilling batter and like flour everywhere. The eggs. The, the eggs, eggs are the, the, the eggs are the worst. Yeah. And that's a struggle for you. Like you don't like mess in that way. Like this is the theme of this conversation. You're a very sensitive person and you're sensitive to sound and you're sensitive to texture and and so for you to do that is that is a sacrifice in itself for you to be uncomfortable because you know that they will enjoy that act of creativity alongside you and that connection it's such a point of connection and and part of that security they get that building that sense of security is wow i can tell mom's uncomfortable right now but she really trusts me <laughs> what i feel coming up right now on this is a need to dismantle the romanticism and not discredit it because again, it is some people's experience and we have to allow for that, but it's not everyone's experience. It doesn't come easily and it is uncomfortable. And those moments you're referring to, it's not like, Oh, look at them in the kitchen. They're baking. It is usually don't do it that way. And then, and then like, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't need to jump on you there. You were just cracking an egg for the first time and you made a mess that happens. Messes happen. And especially the first time we try them. So do you catch yourself that fast? Gather myself and let's clean this up. That's amazing. <laughs> and it's, it is this very unromantic experience of sharing this time in this space of we have this ideal let's bake together and then it like goes way off course and downhill and then we catch it and together real time we try to bring it back onto the rails and let's take our voices down let's be patient let's allow mess it does not happen without error and yeah he does get to see that processing and there's a lot of apologizing and I was almost romanticizing it just instinctively, like in retelling it of like, oh, you cooking with the kids. And I know. But, and but as yeah, a woman, we, I know that yeah. moms, like we hear that and we think, oh God, we should do that. Look, it doesn't look like that. And yet we should do that. It is incredibly challenging and it's not picture perfect, but it also doesn't have to be. And if, if you're that mother who gets in the middle of it and wishes she never offered this to her kids and just wants them to leave the kitchen so she can clean up and move on, you know, press on. I'm with you. Can I read you a quote? Mm -hmm. So this kind of ties into you allowing Liam to spill all that egg yolk everywhere. And But this is about giving kids room to make mistakes, to be their own people, to try things and fail rather than swooping in to make everything right immediately, instinctively. And so this is the psychologist, uh, Jordan Peterson, talking. This was in a, a public lecture. And he said, you can't protect people. You can only make them strong. That's it. Mm. You cannot protect them. He says that again, just to underline it, italicize it. You can make them strong, and then they can protect themselves. Mm -hmm. But then they don't need you. Right. And there's the underground pathological element of the devouring mother. Never leave me. Here's the deal. And this is the mother speaking, the devouring mother. I'll do everything for you. Just never leave. That is sleeping with your mother. That's the Freudian nightmare. You don't invite your child into your bed. 
you distinguish between them and you. You distinguish between them and your husband and you facilitate their independence. A part of the reason why it's useful to have a mother and a father is the mother has to fall insanely in love with the infant or she'd throw it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> There's gonna be a lot of people listening to this like nodding and, <laughs> and saying amen. Because they're insanely demanding and they're always right. Because the right way to treat an infant, especially before nine months is, I'll do everything for you and you're always right and your needs take priority over everyone else's, and anyone who threatens you is terrible. <laughs> I thought that was just beautiful. I, the second I heard that, I just immediately transcribed that whole section because it, it felt so emotionally true when I heard him say that because I had that experience of a very strong, capable mother who struggled to let me make mistakes mm. in the same way that you struggle with the mess of that egg spilling on the counter. My sense is that it was just as difficult for my mom to see me make mistakes in life, to color outside the lines, to make choices about spirituality and sexuality and all of these things that made her uncomfortable and that to her felt like, no, that's not how you do that. You... You, you wait to have sex until marriage. You don't, you know. Part of my individuation process and my untangling from her was I wanted mess. Like she was so ordered that I felt like my, this wasn't, none of this was conscious. It was all unconscious, but I wanted things that sounded distorted. And for me, that was learning the guitar and learning, you know, Metallica songs, you know, at 12 years old and listening to much heavier music than Metallica, listening to the album Scrolls of the Megaloth, Mortification, and, and some of these bands. It was all about emotion rather than thoughts for you to consider. You know? <laughs> and I just remember her at one point, she had dropped me off to get my hair cut. She left me because she had to go run an errand and she said, I'll be back in 10 minutes. And she gave me you know, $10 or whatever to get my hair cut. And because she wasn't there, I had always wanted to have the undercut, like getting it shaved underneath the hairline because it just looked so metal to me and it looked so cool. And she came back and she was so upset that I had you know, gotten this heavy metal haircut because it was just not her mental image of the Christian kid it was discordant with how she felt the world needed to be. Mm. How old were you? I was, I think I was in middle school. I think I was about, okay. yeah. I think I was about 11 or 12. This is around the same time that I was like learning the guitar, getting into Metallica. Right. And putting, just to put that into yeah. perspective briefly, our kids already, we don't get to decide what their hair looks like and they're mm. seven and nine. Mm. So as a middle schooler without that, where you have to do it in secrecy when your mom is not present like that it's tough and I, I was sitting in the barbers when Liam was getting his haircut and there was a mom right beside me with probably a kid your age telling me her side of this exact story she was literally talking about how challenging it is that he wants his hair one way and she wants it another I'm just like wow are choosing your child's hairstyle at like but we do look i mean it, yeah, we, yeah. it is incredibly difficult to separate ourselves and allow that autonomy to come in incrementally over time and that's yeah, what we yeah, see yeah. that's what you mm -hmm. experience that's what this lady was saying to me and yet we have to this is how i feel 
we have to allow that autonomy and respect it because this is how we avoid this dynamic. And it is a way of communicating that respect to them and of, of teaching them that they can protect themselves. And, you know, to go back to your quote, like that's how you build it in is in these really small ways. And it takes that detachment of, okay, that is not at all how I would like to do that or, but I'm going to keep my opinions to myself because this is another human being who needs to go through and make their own choices and decisions, whether it's a haircut, like that's a perfect small way to engage with this. And we Hmm. need to, we need to do it on these small ways. My mom could control me by making me feel shame or that I wasn't measuring up to her, the type of kid I should be. Like I knew that she didn't approve of different ways. And, and I was a people pleaser. I like, I'm such a sensitive kid and still a sensitive man, but I wanted to keep the peace and I wanted to please her. And so I would act in ways and do things that I didn't really want to do. I would read my Bible every night. I would you know, do these things that I didn't really want to do, but I was like, this is going to make my mom so happy and she's going to be so proud of me if I do this. And I kept doing that. At your expense. At my expense. Mm-hmm. I kept doing it into adulthood. Because we love our mothers. Yes, <laughs> we do. These are the areas in which sons, but I think this applies to daughters as well. Mm-hmm. Like these are human issues, and, these, and that's why these things are archetypal and why we're yeah. separating archetypal from literal male and female. Right. Um, because a woman growing up with a very controlling mother is Rapunzel. The Rapunzel myth, that is another devouring mother myth, but with a daughter in the in the picture. Mm-hmm. Because Mother Gothel, that's her name in the Disney remake of it. Mother Gothel locks Rapunzel in a tower and controls her and shames her for wanting her independence and tries to play the martyr and like, oh, don't leave me. I mean, that is literally what Jordan Peterson just described. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there is a potential for children young or grown 50 years old it doesn't matter how old you are to resent their parents and i want to read this quote from camille paglia i'm actually going to read two quotes from her they're they're fairly short but they both speak to this idea of this potential lifelong conflict between a child and the and the devouring mother so the first quote she writes mothers can be fatal to their sons again archetypal she's speaking in jungian archetypes It is against the mother that men have erected their towering edifices of politics and sky cult. Yikes. She is Medusa, in whom Freud sees the castrating and castrated female pubes. But Medusa's snaky hair is also the writhing vegetable growth of nature. That's what I was referring to earlier. Her hideous grimace is men's fear of the laughter of women. And this is me interjecting, but just that feeling of women being so powerful that even if they laugh at your attempts, just that mockery will make you disappear into dust. Women so often take for granted the power they have over, they can ruin a man just by laughing at them kind of derisively at their attempts to to woo them. She that gives life also blocks the way to freedom. That's the final line of that Paglia quote. And then here's the second quote from the same essay. And I think this is from her book, Sexual Persona. I'm not sure. I read it in a collection of essays called, was it Free Men, Free Women? 
I think where she's talking about sexuality and gender politics and those kinds of things. This quote just also rocked me when I read it. I just froze. I'm like, oh my God, you just said something so profoundly true. A man must do battle with that enormity, which resides in women and nature. He can attain selfhood only by beating back the demonic cloud that would swallow him up. Mother love, which we may just as well call mother hate. Mother love, mother hate, for her or from her, one huge conglomerate of natural power. Political equality for women will make very little difference in this emotional turmoil that is going on above and below politics, outside the scheme of social life. Not until all babies are born from glass jars will the combat cease between mother and son. <laughs> I just love that because she's basically saying until we can figure out how to grow babies in a lab without all of these kind of evolutionary features hardwired into them, there's going to be this struggle of independence and feeling a need to kill that mother symbolically in order to have your freedom. Mm, that's where my curiosity lies is how much as mothers can we help or hinder that dynamic and I guess I personally even want to go so far as to question can I avoid that with my children can I make it so that they feel free from the get-go and don't have to come up against that and I don't know I don't know I guess we'll see if the podcast makes it another 30 years <laughs> we'll, we'll let you know but I'm interested in this conversation, and this is a conversation between Jason and I. We are not trying to put out some preachy message about this. We're wanting to wrestle and grapple with this because they are our curiosities as parents. How can we help our children? We've seen these dynamics. I am someone, as he said, I do not think coddling is kind. I do not think you should do for other people what they need to do for themselves. I think it handicaps and it doesn't serve them. And that doesn't mean there's not room for support, encouragement, all of those things. However, I feel very in touch with my power as a woman and as a mother. I feel very aware of the vulnerabilities, speaking for my husband and my children. I, I know, feel vulnerable around you. Yes, I know that I rule this roost. And I want to do it respectfully. I do not want to do it as a dictator. And I feel like I have that potential because women, we do. And I want to respect that. And that's why having these conversations and looking into these archetypes, I know that Jason relates to them and I relate to them. And I want to learn how to approach these relationships respectfully honoring that my children already look to us as if we're this little god and and they've been <laughs> Liam has commented that he's starting to question like do adults really know everything do they know how to handle every situation <laughs> you can see the lights coming on that he has been living under this assumption that we are in complete control and we are the absolute authority we know right from wrong and black from white and and our word stands and he is coming up. He's starting to see that that's not the case. And that is a wonderful thing to let your children see because otherwise they will feel the pressure. One, that they can always depend on you, which we know they can't, and we will let them down. I uh, wish they could, but yeah. we know that they can't. And two, 
that they cannot trust themselves because it's a figure outside of themselves that has the truth. And that's not mm, the case mm-hmm. either. And that won't serve them. And also that should they venture to trust themselves, if they fail, that that is some sign of weakness instead of just the inevitable truth and reality for all of us and that we have to keep venturing safely into that territory of learning to trust ourselves and sorry I don't know why I got on that tangent but (laughs) I just think I love everything about that tangent so important I I love it so much because tying it back into I am obsessed with mythology and art and the stories that we tell and the meaning of those stories beneath what we even are consciously aware of. And I think one of the stories that we as a species have told over and over again is this myth of the perfect parent. And you know what I'm talking about. This is the foundation of every monotheistic world religion, a perfect parent who will protect you, who will intercede for you to referee, to smite your enemies. This is a human longing as deep as the marrow in our most interior bone. There's this Christopher Hitchens quote. He was in a public debate with an evangelical Christian named William Dembski, and they were debating religion. But there was this riff that he went on talking about this deep human wish for this eternal parent and the dark side of it. And this is the devouring mother under the male guise. Hitchens, who I miss deeply, and I wish he was still around because in the moment that we're in, in the cultural unrest, I think he would have a lot to say about where we are in terms of people wanting to overthrow authority and tear down the statues of revered people. And in the same way that I wanted to tear down my mother, who I resented for, you know, being on that pedestal over me and judging me and and me seeing all her faults. She wasn't a slave trader, but I felt like she was in the slavery business for a period of time at my most, like, you know, flamboyant, like overreading of like her controlling impulses. But um, Hitchens said in this debate, I don't think it's healthy for people to want there to be a permanent, unalterable, irremovable authority over them. I don't like the idea of a father who never goes away. And nor would you if you think about it. When you get closer to parenthood, you won't say to your children, don't worry, I'll never die. You won't be at my funeral, I'll be at yours. I'll be at your grandchildren's funeral. You'll never hear the end of me. That's actually not loving paternity. The idea of a king who cannot be deposed. Very un-American. Obviously, we force our leaders to step down after four years. And maybe we need term limits for parents, like where they have to give up their control after 18 years or something. Um, That's my interjection. But he says, very un-American as well as a very undemocratic one. The idea of a judge who doesn't allow a lawyer or a jury or an appeal. This is an appeal to absolutism. It's the part of ourselves that's not so nice, that wants security, that wants certainty, that wants to be taken care of. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the human struggle for freedom was against the worst kind of dictatorship of all, the theocracy. 
the one that claims that it has God on its side, the divine right of kings, the feudal system, the monarchical one against which the American Revolution with its secular humanism took place. I believe the totalitarian temptation has to be resisted, and I believe this is one of its core origin points. So what I'm inviting you to do is consider emancipating yourself from the idea that you selfishly are the sole object of all the wonders of the cosmos and of nature, (laughs) because that is not a humble idea at all. It's a very arrogant one, and there's no evidence for it. You'd do better to emancipate yourself from it and do some real study of genetics and biology and cosmology. And then a second emancipation, to think of yourself as free citizens who are not in thrall to any supernatural eternal authority, which you will always find is interpreted for you by other mammals who claim to have access to this authority that gives them special power over you. Don't allow yourselves to have your lives run like that. I know that's a longer quote, but there's so much. It's like a mini sermon on the devouring parent, but it's probably a subject for another podcast talking about religious disillusionment and what that's meant for us as parents as we figure out how to raise our kids. That was a fundamental tenet of how we were raised. But I think for me, my religious disillusionment was my symbolic acting out of dethroning the judgmental controlling parent. Mm. before I had the courage to escort my mother off the throne of my life and saying, you can have your opinions and you are entitled to them, but I am a free man and a grown man who will make my own choices and I will interact with my family the way that I see fit. And that's where all of a sudden I come into my power. Even my dad, and this isn't just reserved to my mom, my dad you know, has his own conceptions of manhood. And again, I'm not harshing on my dad, but he, he did say something that was really has stuck in my mind. He said, Jace, you have really been domesticated. This idea of me running around doing all these things that he's always seen my mom do. He associates it with the domestic goddess. Mm. To, for him to see a man running around doing all these things and then serving up this big tasty meal... The idea of domestication is like a little animal that's been neutered, you know, is now harmless. I am not a neutered dog. I am the hunter who goes out and kills a beast and comes back and roasts it on a spit over an open flame to feed the village. That is what emotionally it feels like right now. And I felt powerful. And that was the thing that was... Like I was waking up and starting to feel like the tables have turned. (laughs) I'm powerful enough to forgive them. I'm powerful enough to serve them. They are getting older. I am in the prime of my life right now and I don't want to waste it. And so that was a real turning point. That whole stage was a turning point. But that was listening to Jordan Peterson, him saying, take up your place, find your strength. The idea of strength has been so maligned because of it's, it's been abused. We've lost faith in power. We think of the word power as a dirty word. We associate the word power with abuse. They're literally synonymous in the minds of many people now because of these really flagrant abuses of power. However, the thing I learned most from Jordan Peterson, who many people revile, but he was my long-distance psychologist helping me back to mental health. And the biggest turning point for me was I've been afraid of being powerful Mm. because I associated it with the church, 
with power figures, you know, pedophilic priests preying on children, with politicians, Trumpian blowhard kind of politicians just talking about groping women. Harvey Weinstein, these are powerful Hollywood figures abusing their power and preying on other people. The idea of power has been sullied. And Peterson said, if you get rid of power because it's been so tarnished in your mind, you will lose the good part of power as well. Because to be a creative person, to show up for your family, to carry the load that is required of all of us in life because life is so hard, that requires power to do that work. And so I had to scrape all of the grime off of the idea of power and reclaim it in the archetype of the noble king rather than the, the ruling tyrant. Yeah, I'm thinking of women and how we come into marriage, into motherhood with a lot of power. And our challenge is to share Ooh. the power. It's to share it with our children so that they don't leave at 18 feeling powerless and have to spend the rest of their adult life reclaiming that from us. Mm -hmm. And to share it with our husbands who are unfortunately coming into marriages in a place of lacking power. And they see that we have it and we're happy to wield it. But as women, I think the challenge is to first recognize we have it. If you can't see it, we have to take off the blinders and see our own power. And if you do see it clearly, then you're at the unique advantage of now having the challenge to share it with others. And it's that type of power that empowers other people to hold their own space, to have their own opinions, to do things their way, however irritating, however challenging, however frustrating. And that's where we continue to evolve because then we're dealing with those uncomfortable emotions of sharing that. And that takes us to a whole other stratosphere. And that power being that heroic coming into your power and in the mythological archetypal story of killing the dragon, you know, whether it's smog, like in The Hobbit, or is it Sir George and the dragon, the, the kind of myth of the knight going out and slaying the dragon? It is not a selfish act. It's not the hero just doing that for their own self-aggrandizement and their own enrichment and glory. The key part that you have to remember, the end of that myth is always that dragon is perched on a mountain of gold. And by killing, slaying that dragon, coming into your power, defeating that enormous threat that looks impossible, you bring that gold back and you share that wealth with the village. Mm. That is the end of that mythological story. And slaying that dragon for me, I thought that was killing my mother, but I was wrong. The dragon was my resentment. Mm, wow. And by killing that resentment, forgiving her, choosing gratitude over vengeance, focusing on all of the ways that she had self-sacrificed, because you don't get to be a mother and avoid the self-sacrifice. It comes for you. And if we cannot be grateful for that, but if we focus on that, all of a sudden the resentment starts to weaken. It starts to melt. And once that leaves and you feel only gratitude, then you dissolve that bitterness. You are able to love. And that was the dragon for me. And the gold that I feel I was able to bring back metaphorically to share with the village is the way that 
I am being more patient with our kids. The way that I am showing up and working hard to pull my weight in this family and to show up for you and to help you out and to cook breakfast while you take an hour to do a yoga class to refresh yourself so that you can jump into the ring. That is all the wealth of doing that work. And my hope is that this podcast is sharing that wealth Hmm. that I have gained from killing my dragons. And you have all of your own dragons that you have killed, you know, your self-doubt, your feeling of just being a waste of space and just not contributing anything to society because you've been cleaning up human feces. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, that, you know, is not still continuing. Our our kids can uh, wipe their own ass now. But uh, yeah, I think that is something we we should celebrate. That's a beautiful thing. I like tying it off there because we started with mythology and archetypal stories and they were dark ones. You know, they were vines pulling us into the ground. We we're going to decompose and they're witches caging children. And once you start looking for them, they're absolutely everywhere. Misery by Stephen King. But how do we hold these things can shed light and yet we look at our own lives and they don't seem that dramatic and yet we don't want to dismiss the lessons and then to learn that they are mirroring something of a subtle reality for some people and I don't know if that's disproportionately boys men I don't know but how do we glean from this while also not completely recognizing it as our reality yeah I mean I think that is there is an emotional truth in that that we can extract and we can realize that we need to confront the dark side of it, but we need to see that there is hope that we don't actually have to kill that mother or overthrow the government or pull down every statue of a famous person because their personal failings. We need to be able to sit with the discomfort of the failure of those who have been in positions of authority over us and reflect on our own failings and be able to miraculously forgive and move forward. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. That's not all about me. (laughs) (laughs) Today it is. (laughs) But I just want to say that I love and respect the gift that you are giving to our kids of letting them climb to the top of the little rope Christmas tree thing at the playground those images, they're very symbolic and representative of your approach as a parent. But when Rowan was something like four or five years old, climbing up to the very top of that rope tower and other parents looking at you like, when are you going to? And you let her do it and you didn't jump in to coddle and those other parents, you could see the discomfort and you were maybe uncomfortable yourself, but you trusted her. That is the gift you are giving to our kids of they feel so strong and capable. Mm. I just, I have to bring it back into the practical and anchor it because you wonder like, okay, how do you get there? And it's not an ignorant kind of, oh, I hope she's all right. The, The way that this plays out practically in our lives, we have already touched on 
it is not doing for others what they need to learn to do for themselves. And my approach with the kids from the beginning, I'm talking about when they were toddling around on the playground for the very first times, I never did anything for them on the playground because if they couldn't do it themselves, I would unknowingly put them in a place of danger. You know, kids like, oh, I want to get up there and parents lift them up. And I'm not, I don't ever go to a park and look around and judge. But I'm just saying my approach was absolutely the opposite. I never lifted them onto anywhere. They had to be able to get themselves up there so that I knew they could get down safely. And so Rowan climbing to the top of that at a very young age, there wasn't this hold your breath sense of, oh my God, I hope she's okay. I, I might need to stand underneath. I had watched her skillfully learn to climb that. And by the time she got to the top, I absolutely knew she, she already knew how to get all the way up and all the way down. I could trust her and I taught her how to learn to do something and how to fully trust herself because I never intervened and mm -hmm. was like, gave her this false sense of security or false sense that she's capable of more than she is because that's not kind. She could have really got hurt if I had done that for her. And so mm, I think that's Peterson saying you can't protect them. You can only make them strong. Exactly. And I want to point this out because you cannot begin to practice this too soon. And actually it is easier for everybody if you start as you mean to go on. It is easier as the parent to allow those small separations and those small scary moments where they just build and layer over time of letting your kids go and giving them freedom and autonomy and, and trusting their own decisions. And it is easier for the child to take on the world in these really small manageable ways where they master the living room, they master the coffee table, they master the playground, they master the slide. Like all of this is building and preparing them for life. They begin to master their first encounter with going to school and you completely encourage them that this might feel hard, but you can do this. And then their next year, you might not like that teacher, but these things come and go and you continue, oh, you're having this battle with your friend. Like, let's talk about this. How does it feel? And yet it's not going to overwhelm you. Like that's completely normal and let's see what happens and what do you think needs to be done? And it is all these small conversations that build up over time. And I just, I feel strongly the way it played out for us is it starts really, really young. And it starts in the physical world first. The sense of body mastery of space and balance. And yeah. then it plays out over time in their emotional lives and their social lives. And so I think, you know, if you have, if you happen to have little ones, you're at a really unique place to step back and observe and see this take root real time. And I, I loved that stage so much. It was very simple and very profound. And I just, I thought that was really beautiful. It starts with that little thing and then we grow that up over time. It's like that investment that down the line, interest compounds until the return is so dramatic. And we have to end it there because Rowan has a school call she needs to jump on. <laughs> Can I be close to so much for listening and sharing your time with us. Let's all keep the conversations going. 
If you're curious for more of ours, subscribe and hear it all. Until next time, be well. Mm-hmm.